1: Okay, there we go. All right. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. Christopher Jason Bell here. It's Indie Beat once again. Thank you for tuning in. I am here. You are here. So let's get started. Okay? Today I have Caroline Gollum, filmmaker, sometimes programmer, sometimes critic, uh, you know, film essayist, all that stuff. Hello, Caroline.
2: Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm great.
1: How are you? Yeah, same. Exactly the same. Um, So Caroline made a film called A Feast of Man. It's really great. I love it a lot. And it's premiering at the Sidewalk Film Festival. So we're going to get to that one in a bit. You can check out the trailer, which is embedded in the article accompanying this podcast. Uh, So, Caroline, why don't you tell me your backstory? Tell me how you fell in love with cinema and all that jazz.
2: Well, uh, the quickest way for me to, to provide this context to you, I think, is to just say that I was raised in a family of show people. And I don't mean that, you know, my parents are famous actors or they're directors or what have you, but I grew up in Los Angeles, and the film industry in Los Angeles is not unlike the auto industry in Detroit. It is the biggest game in town. Most of the people you know... Uh, are working in the film business in some capacity. Growing up in school, my friend's parents were all involved uh, tangentially. Uh, I had a good friend whose father was a set dresser. I went to Hebrew school with a guy who did some production design or um, set building on some Coen Brothers movies. Uh, Another close friend, her father wrote the script for Jumanji. And um, I myself was raised by a television publicist and an entertainment story editor for uh, news outlets. So growing up, you know movies were very much a, a part of our household, and I would say for many years, even when things you know between myself and my parents weren't great because I was, after all, a teenager at some point, uh, film was still very much a lingua franca that we used to communicate with one another, and it was a shared interest, it was something we could all agree on. We all loved going to the movies, and it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. My parents took me to movies when I was a little kid, uh, we had films that my dad had taped off the TV that we watched all the time, and a lot of my most vivid childhood memories, early childhood memories, like pre-kindergarten age, are centered around watching a movie either in a theater or at home, hearing my parents talk about a movie, um, catching little snippets of films on television and trying to make sense of them out of context. Even um, our house was decorated almost exclusively with one-sheet posters that my dad got for free over the years. So in our living room, in our ranch-style house in the San Fernando Valley, when you come in, on one wall we have the poster for Back to the Future, and animal house. And then on a a perpendicular wall, there's the poster for Reds with Warren Beatty, which is a film that I've never seen and that my dad doesn't like, but we still have the poster. And another poster for a UCLA uh, restoration screening of Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. And... I grew up looking at these images from when I could even focus my eyes, I mean, as a, as a child, a toddler. And years later, I asked my dad, why do we have the poster for Reds and Joan of Arc in our living room if he doesn't like either of those films? And he said, well, you know, your mother dragged me to this UCLA movie. Uh, it was just close-ups of one woman's head making faces for 90 minutes with no sound. And uh, I, was, I was so pissed off, but when we left, they were giving away the poster, and I thought, you know, I might as well get something for my time. <laughs> so from a very tender age, I was aware of Dreyer's work and also Robert Zemeckis and, uh, was it Ivan Reitman who did Animal House? Right? Uh, one yeah,
0: those,
2: yeah. yeah, one of those guys. So those guys were, were all very popular. And then we also had these these stills of, from films um, decorating our house. In our bathroom, we had a still from Casablanca. <laughs> so, and Sam kind of huddled around the piano, and I would take a bath, you know, as a little kid, and look up at this picture and go, why do we have a picture of these people who aren't related to us? And then, of course, years later, I saw the film, you know, and, and it all made sense. So, to say that there was a particular moment where I fell in love with movies, I think would be inaccurate. I I think, if anything, I was born to love them.
1: Yeah, it was inevitable.
2: Naturally. Or yeah. I could have become, you know, a, a Republican financier. I hated my parents that much. Yeah. Thankfully, I love them very deeply. So I'm happy to continue carrying the tradition of rabid Gollum family movie fandom. <laughs> um,
1: so how did this lead to you programming and making movies and all that?
2: You know, I thought for a long time... I, always, I, I loved movies when I was a kid, but more than movies for a long time, I loved cartoons. And I wanted to be a cartoonist when I was younger. I drew all the time. And then after a certain point, I guess... It would be around the time that I discovered the films of Stanley Kubrick, every burgeoning filmmaker's training wheel set.
1: He's a shit.
2: If hes I mean, when you're young, there's really nothing better because there's just so much to look at and it's so unusual. And so uh, when I was, you know, I don't know, like bat mitzvah age, uh, I had some friends in school who um, had very hip parents and they were reading the book of A Clockwork Orange. And I read the book uh, with them and we all you know, tried to like speak in the, in this clockwork orange slang and like were preoccupied with the film. And I finally watched the movie and I was just flabbergasted. I mean, I, it's so stylized and so specific and and violent and also funny. And it's just a a very overstimulating experience if you're a young girl. And I, from that moment on just decided, well, you know, I don't know if making cartoons is for me anymore. And just thought well fuck it you know uh why don't I just write movies instead
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and similarly you know to that moment of discovery with Stanley Kubrick I also at the time um my parents got like a big digital cable package that had like IFC and the Sundance channel I'm dating myself here this is very like an early aughts kind of media exposure experience but I watched all these films by you know Jim John and uh Tom DeChillo, I think is how you pronounce it and um And they would show, you know, even like Sarah Jacobson films late at night, things like that. And seeing that um, you could make a movie without having the studio infrastructure that I was already familiar with was very eye-opening for me. And I thought, well, shit, you know, even, or Pie is another one that Darren Aronofsky film. That movie is really shoestring and bizarre. And I remember watching it over and over and over again on television and thinking, I I could do this. You know, this is just, it's not like a, a bunch of moving parts. It's a guy, it's a camera. Um, somebody calling the shots, maybe somebody recording sound. I didn't know that much about the actual process of filmmaking at the time, but I, I put the pieces together that it, it didn't take a whole army of people the way it used to. And when, when I realized that, it occurred to me that filmmaking was not so far off and, and not so inaccessible and that I could do it. So I just decided to be a filmmaker and that informed every fucking decision of my life from every moment onward it informed where I went to college I came to New York to go to the School of Visual Arts Uh, NYU obviously is the jewel in the crown if you're going to film school in New York but I didn't have the grades or the money so SVA was kind of the next next cheapest next logical step and I was very grateful actually for the education that I received there because it was um, extremely low stakes it was a production class every semester You shoot and edit a project every semester. You learn to work with people. It's very technical. There was very little film theory. And the professors were extremely lenient and very, very willing to be convinced when I was late with something or didn't come to class or, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, the film school was just like one component of it for me. the, The part where we get into the programming and the writing that also sort of informs, you know, why I'm here and why I do it is when I... First moved to New York, I got into this habit of going through like the the, uh, goings on about town in the New Yorker and like underlining every movie made before 1950 that was playing, because in California, you know, we we have our fair share of movie theaters, especially in Los Angeles. And I spent a lot of my time in high school going to the New Beverly and the Arrow and the Egyptian and the and the Hammer Museum, the kind of. Uh, more popular repertory spots. This is before Cinefamily and all that stuff, and I spent a lot of time going there, and it was great stuff. But it was a lot of very uh, kind of like mainstream sight and sound list, uh, you know, top 200 films.
1: Yeah, the canon. So got,
2: yeah, the canon. But I got the canon out of the way in high school. So when I moved to New York, and they were showing, you know, uh, a bunch of Lubitsch silent films, or which I guess is canonical if you're if you're thinking right, but you know that kind of stuff were um or like bizarre, um, you know. 80s like Hong Kong movies or you know any kind of uh, strange thing that they were showing here I just like immediately gravitated toward it and at my peak when I was in school uh, with a lightish course load and not a very demanding job I was probably seeing two or three movies a week maybe even more Um, and that was at every theater here it was like being um, it's like being Augustus Glute in in the Chocolate Factory you know there was MoMA and Film Forum and There are more theaters now than there were when I moved here. That was 11 years ago when I moved here. Uh, But even then, it was so many. Lincoln Center, BAM, uh, you know, IFC, and the Angelica. I I mean, I went to all these places all the fucking time. I was always there. And it was through going to the movies that I kind of began to meet people. Um, You see the same people kind of pop up over and over again. And New York has a very, very healthy and very zealous uh, film-going culture. Uh, Part of the reason why I wanted to move here, even though everyone said, if you want to make movies, you should stay in LA is because I wanted to be somewhere where people went to the movies where they revered not just film as a medium, but the act of going to the cinema itself, because that's the other half of the equation, right? Mm -hmm. You make the movie, but if nobody goes to see it, then what the fuck do you have? And we can talk more about that philosophy when we get to the the part about the festival, but you you know, you get the general idea. So, uh, the programming thing came about because I have a, a very close friend, a filmmaker, critic and excellent programmer named Stephen Farland, who you know also. And he moved to New York about a year and change after me. Uh, we had met on live journal in 2003 and we would occasionally meet up in, um, in Los Angeles. He was going to college in Orange County at the time. We'd meet up in downtown LA and we'd go to the movies. We'd walk around, you know, just kind of like shoot the shit and just talk about cinema. So when he moved to New York, it was like having a drinking buddy, but like a movie-going buddy. We went to the movies a whole bunch. And um, and he fell in with a, another friend of ours named Reed Bingham. And sometime, I would say around, oh, like maybe 2008, it might be even earlier, it might be a hair later, um, he and Reed put on a screening in the basement of a Spanish-American restaurant on Delancey Street of a film called Truck Turner. And they decided to call themselves Cinebees. And seeing that they were into something really fun and not wanting to be excluded, I said, well, you know, you need a publicist, right? (laughs) And uh, I was the PR intern at anthology at the time, so I felt qualified enough to, you know, like put my foot in the door and say, let me do this for you. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. But it was an inn, and sooner rather than later i was pitching screenings and we were working collaboratively to do really interesting things and we had a few years there where we were doing site-specific work film programs that complemented the location of the screening some highlights we did a, a screening on a boat that was built in 1934 that was moored at houston street mm-hmm. at the west side Highway. And I programmed an entire night of, of things that you would see if you went to the movies in 1934 and paid your nickel. So a newsreel, a short subject, a cartoon, and a feature. And uh, I had a friend at the time named Bliss Blood who was in a jazz combo that played 20s and 30s jazz music. So we had them come and play the show. And it was like a fancy dress soiree. And, and Reed rigged this kind of giant, Screen that we projected onto on the boat, and uh, we rented chairs from rooftop films. We had to like drive a van down to the Gowanus to pick them up and then bring them onto the boat. And somebody who showed up got drunk and threw a chair off the side of the boat. I mean, it was pretty pretty kooky, but that's how we got into the programming thing. So, you know, we we did this for a little while, and then um, as Cinebeast began to kind of fade away, because you know, we got older, some of us went to grad school, some of us did other things. um, I met through steve again the the guy who kind of somewhat founded the spectacle theater this guy troy swain so he and a handful of other people founded the spectacle uh, six or seven years ago it's still in the same storefront on south third and bedford and although i've only been formally volunteering there for about a year and change i've done everything from unclog a toilet to scrape graffiti and tags off the front and cinebesa uh, programs and things there right before we finally closed the book on that so it all happened I would say sort of organically I didn't move here with the intention of programming screenings I didn't think that was a job somebody did I now know that it's actually an incredibly difficult and thankless job and I revere it tremendously but at the time I had no idea and I didn't come here with the intention of volunteering at a DIY movie theater or writing about movies for a friend's incredibly valuable website but these things all sort of happened because you know like I said, I loved um, going to the movies and I came here with the intention of making films and, you know, making movies is very expensive and it's very time consuming, but I wanted to still be able to wade in those waters and and maintain a practice that was related to cinema in some way.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, people ask me why I do this show and it's kind of like, uh, in a really corny way, I see it as like giving back to the community or like, Maybe not. I don't know. It just seems something like healthy to have, you know, like, do we need another, another podcast? Like, probably not. But in terms of talking to filmmakers and friends that I like that I think are smart and, you know, I want to get their work out there, I think it's good. And I think, you know, Spectacle is wonderful at that doing like really interesting stuff all the time. And it is very thankless because they don't get the credit they deserve at all. Amen um, to that. Yeah. But, I uh. Have to do some stories. <laughs> um, and Screen Slate is like really, really invaluable.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, and also thankless because John doesn't make any money off it.
1: Yeah. No. And you know, he doesn't.
2: No, I think I can use the Royal We when I talk about it because I'm, again, it's the same thing with Spectacle where I've been a fan and involved and, and known the people in charge for a while, but only. Very recently, formally got involved because I just felt like I had to do something. Uh, but Screen Slate is the same deal; I, it's it's the the unifying force that I think our little movie colony here in New York had had been dying for yeah. without knowing it. And John started Screen Slate right around the time that we were kind of picking up steam with *Cinebeast*, and he was a, a very early champion of our of our programs. Um, he was always very very generous about doing the feature write up and, you know, and, and that's how we got to know each other is through that thing too. And, and, you know, I had, when I, I started writing for screen Slate maybe like a year and change ago, same deal with the spectacle, not very, not very long. Um, but we had talked about doing it for a long time. And I was so shy about it because, you know, it's, it's hard to write about movies in a way that's actually effective and makes people want to go. And, um, and there's so many people in New York and also all over the world that are, really gifted when it comes to describing what it is about a film that makes it special or interesting. And I just, I was terrified of like dipping my toe into this, into this venomous bath of other talents. But John was very persistent and, and asked very nicely and was very encouraging. And now I do it, you know, with some regularity and and it's, it's turned into some other pieces for other outlets as well. So it, it's interesting that you, Describe this podcast as a kind of giving back because I feel like we're all constantly giving to one another, is how I would describe it, you know, even though everybody likes to joke that there's a lot of scene beef with programming and writing and people say this and that and the other on Twitter and don't even get me fucking started on that shit, you know
1: Oh, I have a Twitter question Oh god, we'll save it for the end Yeah, yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: I'm not a big fan even though I'm on there all the time
1: I mean, yeah, that's everyone Isn't that everybody? I don't know. Oh, well. it's,
2: like a, it's like a cocktail party you can, <laughs> you can choose to eavesdrop on somebody else's conversation, you can try foolishly to inject yourself into a conversation between two people who are more important or interesting than you are yeah. or you can just start chattering into the ether and hope that some people stand around you and listen yeah. that's all it is, you know um, anyway, so back to the whole like giving back and the, and the kumbaya shit that I was talking <laughs> about Yeah, um, it, it's like this weird kind of vertically integrated uh, system here where we have Filmmakers who are working in New York, who are hiring in New York and casting in New York. And they make these films that will play, you know, at at theaters around town. Um, And then, you know, we'll all comment about them in our writing and write about them for different places. Uh, The repertory scene is a little bit different. I like to think of it as kind of a parallel stream to the New York indie thing um I'm definitely more familiar with one than the other I don't know if I'm so deep in the in the shit with the micro budget filmmaking community here as I am with like people who just go to see Powell and Pressburger movies in the middle of the day those are more my folks but it is all part of the same kind of universe and we all know each other and and even though it can be a little bit aggravating I still think it's very very heartwarming that we have a sort of dysfunctional family that we can all be a part of. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very pleased that in the years since I moved here, when all I was doing was going to the movies by myself and feeling like a lonesome sack of shit, uh, i now I'm at a point where, you know, I go to the movies and I run into someone I know and I, you know, I'm not, I go by myself, but then I end up grabbing a beer with, you know, whoever I run into. And it, and it, it's very nice. It's nice to know that, you know, you can kind of run into people and, and you have this, uh, this shared vibe. Mm
1: hmm. Gotcha, cool. Um, So let's let's talk about the movie. Yes, let's. Let's talk about a feast of man. Can you tell me? So, a feast of man is all right. I'm going to be smoother about this uh, about this jumping into the movie because I stuttered a bit. Um, so a feast of man. Your first feature film, and it was written by our friend Dylan Pasture. Is that co-written? or?
2: Something? Well, Dylan came up with the original concept, and not to bring it all back around to film school, but inevitably we have to go there. He and I met in a directing class um, our sophomore year of school together. And you know by then you, you pick your concentration, and then those are all the classes that you take. So he and I were taking directing classes And we were turning in these pages of different scripts that we wanted to make, you know, uh, things that we wanted to cast, and and we were learning to work with actors and how to describe to them what we wanted, you know, the important shit that directing is comprised of. And we had a professor named Bill Hopkins, who's a wonderful man, an incredibly talented individual, who, after hearing a little bit about what Dylan wanted to do and a little bit about what I wanted to do, put us together. And he said, you two have to get together. And we were directing, like, scenes from Topsy Turvy and Metropolitan and, you know, all those kinds of really talky, like, 90s refined films. And Dylan, in class, uh, pitched me on this idea. He said, I want to make a movie about a guy who, who dies and his friends go to watch his video, Will. And in the Will, he says that in order to inherit his fortune, they have to agree to consume his body. And I thought, holy shit, this is a great idea. And then years went by. We both graduated from our respective classes. Um, I made a film that clocked in at about 40 something minutes with a very close friend of mine, and it, uh, it didn't turn out the way that I'd wanted. It was very much a you know, DIY, kind of self contained um, film about lesbian cat burglars in Bushwick. And it's very Bushwick plays itself circa 2011, hmm. 2012. I guess in a few years it'll be valuable, but for now it's just like, I think it's trash. Uh, Dylan also was coming off of a project, uh, you know, a few years ago that did not turn out the way that he had hoped. And one dark night of the soul, I was shit faced at a bar in Greenpoint, and I was with a girlfriend of mine bitching to her about this cat burglar movie that wasn't going to go anywhere and she said why didn't you and dylan ever make a feast of man because that story you know among our our friend group in school had a little bit of like notoriety we would like pitch it to people just for fun and it was kind of this joke and then i thought you know fuck it like why didn't we make a feast of man so i called him up i think it was in shit would have been in like fall or winter of 2013 so some time ago i called him up and i said Dylan, why didn't we ever make a feast of a man? And he said, "Let's write it. Fuck it." I said, "Yeah, fuck it." So we spent six months writing the script. We knew the beginning and we knew the end, and we had to do the whole middle, which is the tough, the tough part. And he came up with the concept. And our writing process, once we got into our groove, you know, really became this seamless uh, exercise. Where you know, he was living in Austin at the time, I was in New York, and we'd have a weekly phone call where we would sit on the phone with each other, and we would type, or one person would do five pages, and then the other person would do the next five pages, and then we'd come together and edit. And at first, you know, the first draft or two, um, you know, you could really see there was like a difference between our respective voices. And then as we became more familiar with working with one another, it kind of congealed into one voice, and we both had unanimously agreed on everything that we wanted to show in the film, every beat in the in the story, uh, how the ending would go, uh, how people would talk, um, you know, what the film would look like. And so by the time we had finished the script, we had this really, uh, very smart and very funny self-contained thing. And we thought, well, now what do we do? So that's when, you know, Dylan, uh, I think, he met our producer, John Yost, through Frank Mosley, who's in the film. I could be wrong about this. Um, but Dylan said, I've got this friend. His name is John. He's an amazing producer. Uh, he did a great film that's screening in New York. Why don't you go to new, you know the screening and introduce yourself and, and talk to him about this movie and see if you can convince him? So I did, and he was into the idea. And shortly thereafter, the crew came together, uh, mostly people that John was working with up in Albany. Um, Frank got involved we cast Katie one of Dylan's dear friends Katie Parker plays Judy in the film as Frank's fiance um, I cast my then roommate Lawrence Bond as the lead uh, kind of guy Gallagher the playboy who dies and puts the whole thing in motion uh, because he just seemed so right for the part and because he was around me and we were talking throughout the, the writing process and we just sort of like cobbled together this group of people and and, uh, and made this Wacky ass movie that's premiering at Sidewalk <laughs> of all
1: places. Um, speaking of the cast, I would have to ask about Lloyd uh, Kaufman.
2: Oh yeah, Uncle Lloyd.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, Chris Fields who plays Wolf Zabar
2: Jr as noxious a stereotype of a Jewish shyster lawyer as you're ever likely to encounter in a micro-budget picture. He used to work at Troma uh, in some capacity. He was either Lloyd's assistant or worked with someone who was, um, or he, he interned there. Um, I'm not sure. He had a kind of a, a connection to the place. And when we were making the film, we hadn't shot, Lloyd's cameo yet because we hadn't cast the part of Wolf's father, Wolf Barr Sr., who tells him in the beginning of the film, you're going to be executing your friend's will. And it sets the, the story in motion. And Chris, while we were on set, said, well, what if we got Lloyd Kaufman to do it? And I thought, well, fuck, if we got Lloyd Kaufman, that would just be too much because he's so funny. And the film is kind of macabre. It's not a trauma type <laughs> film per se, but it does have that very scrappy and extremely low budget ethos. So it would be nice. We thought it would be a really nice kind of nod to like, you know, the the weird genre pictures that we know and love and a little bit of like Grindhouse, New York in our nouveau indie movie. And Chris reached out to Lloyd's people and he was very receptive. We spent a lovely afternoon with him in the financial district office of a law firm that I have a cousin who works at. We found the office also in a very roundabout way. And that's how Lloyd ended up in the movie.
1: That's good. Yeah. That's sick. Yeah, that's yeah. a good find. Um, so, going a little back to what you said, you mentioned um, scrappy filmmaking, very, very low budget and stuff. Okay. All right. I'll give you that. However, um, one of the things I loved about your film that I don't see a lot in micro budget films is that. A Feast of Man is very nicely composed. It's it's very um it's it's very purposeful. Uh I like the idea of h- how you made it look and how you made it feel um especially like comedy-wise. It looks very nice and uh I don't know, it's very beautiful in its own in its own way that You would assume that, like, when you say scrappy, I know what you mean, but I also think, like, well, no, your picture, your film, your picture, your picture uh, looks very handsome. Um, It looks, yeah. I mean, composed is, like, what I would like to say about A Feast of Man. So, what was that like, making something so, like, let's say, somewhat lavish on such a small amount of money?
2: We did a a lot with what we had, and a lot of the credit, I would say the lion's share uh, goes to two people in that regard, Uh, John Yost, our producer, obviously, and John Stegman, who is the production designer. And, you know, coming off of a short and really, when I say scrappy, I mean very scrappy, uh, micro-budget like sub micro budget movie that I made with my friends about lesbian Capper, where's coming off of something like that and having a dedicated person to do the production design of the film was so luxurious for me. It was remarkable. And I loved having somebody that I could talk to about what I had in mind with the way that the film should look, uh, other films that we drew inspiration from Um you know how the um, how the scene should be laid out, and all the kind of tchotchkes and things that need to tell the story, because we don't have a lot of time. The script takes place only over forty-eight or seventy-two hours, um, and we only had mostly one location with a few exceptions. So we needed to do a lot of what's the word I'm thinking of? Not shortcutting, but we had to do a lot of um, explanation visually. Mm. And having just the right ship in a bottle or just the right taxidermy pheasant on the mantelpiece really went a long way in making these people who are our friends, they're not wealthy people, they're just our buddies who are, you know, actors, making them seem like rich assholes because that's what they needed. And the biggest challenge for us uh, was, of course, how do we make these people look rich knowing that our budget, you know, our operating budget was, I, I believe, anywhere from ten to $15,000 for the two weeks that we were shooting. And that was, that's, you know, for my contribution of it. I think John Yost also put in a couple grand on, on his own dime uh, very, very gratefully because he really loved this project and believed in it. And we just had to like improvise and, and do all kinds of weird shit to convey that this was a, a very rarefied milieu. So part of that was, um, you know, John Yost has a production company up in Albany. Uh, the Avery Park Boys, the APB, and part of his production company, it's it's himself, uh, Jim Powers, who is our second unit camera person, Steve Powers, who's his brother, and John Stegman, who did the production design. And they have a kind of like miniature studio, I would say. Um, They're a very well-oiled machine, and they have a lot of deep ties to the community in Albany. We were shooting in Hudson, New York, which is not far. And if I recall correctly, John Stegman got a lot of the things that we used by borrowing them from a an antique store near where they lived. Whoa. So they offered to do a commercial for the antique store for free in exchange for borrowing a lot of things. And while we were working on the film, I uh, sent John Stegman you know, clips of films that I really liked, uh, talked through with him what our what our kind of visual influences were i i'm a big fan of you know 1930s society screwball comedies obviously so like bringing a baby and the thin man films and um you know also uh metropolitan which is you know i'm going to mention this movie a hundred more times uh, during our interview but metropolitan is a great example too but you know rich assholes coming together kind of thing mm-hmm. um and uh, and other kind of weirder things too, like eating Raoul was a big one for us. We loved that film, and we loved the way it looked. So we wanted to be sure that John was familiar with it. And he did an amazing job. They took every stick of furniture that was going to be on camera in the house that we Airbnb'd, stayed in, and filmed at for two weeks. Moved it into their storage facility in Albany, and then brought all of this antique furniture into this house. So what you're looking at when you watch the film is not like somebody's house that we just dropped in on. It's very deliberate. And it's a testament to how dedicated these guys are and how inventive too. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, we didn't have a whole lot of money and we needed these people to look like they had a lot of money. So I, you know, this is something that I never would have thought to do. Um, but I, it's, it's one of the reasons why I consider myself so blessed, you know, to have been able to work on, on a first feature with an actual production designer, with a producer who is extremely knowledgeable and, and gifted, and with a very experienced DP, and then later, you know, with a with a very experienced and talented editor as well. I would joke on set that I must have been uh, a saint or a, some sort of charitable actor in a former life because there's no way that I deserved the amount of gifts that I got from other people for making this film.
1: Yeah, no, it's not usual for a uh, for a first feature for a micro budget. Um, feature for all that stuff to happen, and it's very easy to just not even try to well, make that was it.
2: That out of the question for us. That? Absolutely out of the question. Yeah, um, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, I have to. I have to tell
0: you about <laughs> it
2: because one of one of my biggest pet peeves, and also it's a pet peeve of Dylan's too, when it comes to independent cinema. And granted, a lot of this has to do with budget, and not everybody has the, the connections that we did when we were making this film. Um, but the thing that drives me bananas is, yeah you know, the best example I can think of is in film school. There were these guys, they were working on a thesis film, and they were shooting on 35 millimeter, if you could fucking believe that. And I watched some of their dailies in class, and it was just guys on a couch in front of a beige wall. And I just thought, damn, like, why would you go to all this trouble to make a film, to scare up the money, just, to sucker amazing people into working with you for nothing if all you're going to give your audience is guys in white t-shirts on a sofa in front of a beige wall yeah for me the the best things about filmmaking the most interesting things are the visual components obviously story is important performance is immensely important uh editing obviously is the real filmmaking here um but you've got to have something interesting because that tells the story
0: yeah And,
2: and you can do a lot uh, with very little, if you're smart about it, yeah. especially production design and wardrobe and all those other visual elements are concerned.
1: Yeah, and I feel like um, I'm not going to knock, uh, you know, other indie filmmakers. You know, their priorities are theirs, and that's fine. But yes. I do feel like we're, you know, at some, on some level, like kind of losing that, where people are definitely focusing on performances and acting and all that and not um, you know shot composition uh, you know well why
2: not both though that's the that's
1: the thing that was yeah. about to me yeah like why, why not all of it <laughs> if your
2: if your priority is to have an intimate and realistic and I use realistic in air quotes because no film is really realistic yeah. to be honest if you want a realistic and, and an intimate movie going experience I can see then why you would want to not make your frame look too composed, not have too many storytelling tchotchkes or interesting visual elements that would distract from the rawness and the realness of what your film is about. Uh, and I applaud people who work in that space because it's very difficult. I myself do not because it bores me.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I would rather make a film that has a whole lot going on, that there's you know something that you can notice uh, in the background every time you watch the film, or you know little visual gags here and there with the way things are laid out um, because that's those are the kinds of films that I grew up watching in Hollywood USA and those are the films that I have revered my entire life and just because I don't have a ton of money doesn't mean I can't try and do a little bit of that in my own work
1: yeah I mean it's definitely harder but you know it's worth it yeah as an audience member to me it's like really tiresome to just be like oh it's just a handheld close up and they're talking and then it's going to be it's that again New
2: York apartment
1: yeah yeah <laughs> That was well. That was my first film. Was you know like either
2: handheld or like very bad tripod work uh, in someone's apartment. We did do a little bit of production design and things like that, but it was all me and I had to do it all myself. But um, but the reason why the film looks the way that it does and why you are responding to that look and the way that you are is because I was fortunate enough to have other people who brought their expertise to this process. Mm-hmm. And I've always been of the mind that filmmaking is best when it's everybody making a kind of a separate movie, if that makes sense. I mean, we're all unified in what we're trying to do. We know what the story is supposed to be. Um, we understand the mood and the mise-en-scene and, and we understand what we're trying to get across to the viewer. But especially on this crew, everybody was doing, kind of like they, it was like they took a, an ownership of it. Everyone had a, a skin in the game, let's mm-hmm. say. Yeah. So our, production designer, did an amazing job because he had an opportunity to do something different, to do something highly stylized and very composed, which he didn't get a lot of opportunity to do. Our DP, Cody Stokes, um, prior to working with us, worked mostly with Nathan Silver. And Nathan Silver is an incredibly talented filmmaker, but his films are very different. They're handheld, they're more intimate. Um, You know, that's kind of more the thing that he does. So... Cody Stokes was working on our film, you know, we would talk about this and and it was very much uh, kind of a departure for him. And we had to have very specific conversations about what I wanted the film to look like, what I wanted the composition of the shots to be. Um, He also weighed in uh, with a lot of invaluable insight into, you know, uh, acting for the camera, which is very different than acting for stage, right? Uh, Which angle the actor should be turned, you know, to which angle they should turn to, to get their best side, mm. um, how to cover, you know, so-and-so many pages of dialogue, with so-and-so many setups, the kinds of things that I knew a little bit about from film school, but did not know as intimately as a, a real DP would.
1: Yeah, like so, eye lines but, and shit like that.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, that, I know it now, but at the time, I mean, this film, we shot it three years ago, mm-hmm. and i watched it a lot recently for obvious reasons, and, even watching it now, I look at it and I think, I would have done this differently, I would have done yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Just the act of making the film with people who were so much more experienced than I was um, has taught me so much that I really and truly cannot wait to make another fucking movie and blow everybody out of the water with what I've learned since.
1: Yeah, your second one's going to be a banger.
2: I hope so. Um, Whatever the second one is, it could be one of like three different movies right now, depending on how things coalesce.
1: Yeah, well, we'll get there. Okay. Um, well, you'll get there.
2: But Eventually, you and
1: me will talk about that in a bit. Uh, it's cool. You answered a bunch of my questions already. <laughs> within, oh, great. Within other I hope answers. I'm
2: not like rambling too much.
1: no, I want I want a lot of talking. Like you want to
2: ramble? I yeah, got
1: you. talking. That's not me. Um. So, are there like? No, yeah, you already answered that. <laughs> um. So. You've shot the movie, and then it's in post. What was that like for you?
2: It was excellent. Uh, Again, another opportunity to sit at the feet of a master and learn the tools of our profession. Uh, Our editor for this film was Zach Clark, who is an amazing filmmaker and a very good writer as well. And he has done a little programming from time to time. He did a Doris Wishman series of the spectacle many years ago, which Mm -hmm. is how he first kind of like appeared on my radar. And he and I met through Frank Mosley, mayor of, (laughs) Indywood. Frank Mosley is like DNA. He's everywhere.
0: Yeah.
2: And having him in our film was so wonderful too, because he's a a great actor. I think this part, if I can just go on a Frank tangent for a second, this is a part that is is not, um, it's not what he normally does. He does a lot of dramatic stuff. Um, He's done some more comedies recently, but this film especially required him to be, Especially funny in a very subtle and obnoxious way, and he fucking nailed it. He reminded me and several other people that I've talked to of every shitty person I dated in college, which is exactly what the part was supposed to be. So he he blew it out of the water. And when it came time to edit this film, Frank, who I wish i mentioned sooner because he's been a champion of this film since he read the script.
0: Yeah, I, I met I mean, him. the first time really... I ever
2: met him was on set, and he has been. A, a tremendous cheerleader and supporter from that moment on. Yeah, he's a I mean, very supportive he, guy. He's extremely supportive, and he's very generous with his time. He introduced me to Zach Clark, who lives in New York as well, and he and I met up at a bar in Williamsburg called The Abbey. And when we started talking, uh, you know, I told him about the film, and Frank had told him a little bit, and it seemed obviously like something he would he would like, um, or else he wouldn't have met with me at this bar. And when we met and we started talking, it was for me, it was like a meeting a fellow expatriate in a foreign country Hmm. and getting to speak your language for the first time in maybe weeks, you know, I met with other editors and nobody seemed quite right. And we had to be very particular about who we hired. They really had to understand what we were trying to do with this film. It wasn't just like we were making a bad Wes Anderson homage, you know, because people are fancily dressed and there's production design. Yeah. You start adding, uh, Dar into your film. People think, Oh, it's bad. Wes Anderson. But (laughs) it was, You know, it was not really that. Um, We needed somebody who understood that the film was uh, campy and also uh, that it was a genre picture. um, And it had to be uh, very funny and also somebody who understood that it was a little mean, too. That the film is mean-spirited, ultimately. It's funny, but it is a mean film. Mm -hmm. And Zach Clark gets it. He and I started talking right away about all of our favorite filmmakers, and we have so many of the same favorite filmmakers we love. Douglas Sirk. And uh, Joseph Losey, who's filmed *The Servant*, was a huge influence
0: mm-hmm.
2: on Dylan and myself when we were writing the film. We directly reference one of the shots in *The Servant* in the opening of the fi- of the picture. It's a little Easter egg for you dorks <laughs> out there. Um, I won't tell you which one. You either know it or you don't.
1: Yeah, rewatch it loves, if you don't know. Jeez. He loves that
2: stuff, and he loves Ken Russell too. And, and we are huge Ken Russell fans, Dylan and myself. And so we and Frank Tashlin, who is the master. No, nobody funnier than Frank Tashlin for me. So he got all those things. And, you know he understood the shorthand of what we were trying to do. and working with him was excellent because he you know I, I say somewhat jokingly that the editors are the real directors of a film, but in this case, um, not to discount my own work, I think Zach Clark really took what we had, which was a film that we made very quickly and for not a lot of money, and treated it like it was you know a Hollywood property. He didn't skimp in any way. He didn't edit the film um, like some cheap trifle or some vanity project. He understood the film and did a job on it that is very obviously very loving and, and very considerate. And he, you know, much in the same way that I feel John Stegman and John Yost and and Cody, our DP, and the other folks involved were invested in this film, I think Zach Clark also saw something in the in the footage and saw something in the script that resonated with him and and his talent is apparent in the work that he did
1: mm. so it's been a long road for you and here yeah. you go the premiere what do you think yeah, no.
2: oh i should also mention that we had to redo the sound
1: mm-hmm.
2: um because i did a sound mix with a, a former colleague of mine who it, who had never done sound for a feature film before. Mm. And I learned a very valuable lesson, which is that you can give people their break later. (laughs) But if you are new to this business, and I am nothing if not a neophyte, you have to pick the best person for the job. You have to find someone with experience who really understands the medium. So we had a very long road in post partially because I had to redo the sound mix, and it took me time to earn money to pay for someone to do that. Yeah. Um, we had the film Color Corrected by Alan Hoffner, who had never done a feature film before, but actually he's the exception that proves the rule because he did an amazing job. It's a very vibrant, very beautiful film, and if there's one thing I can't stand, it's that washed-out, flat, Sony FS700, uncolor-corrected <laughs> look that yeah. not so many people seem to be settling for these days. I think Color Correction is... Again, another like production design. It's a major part of how you tell the story. Yeah, um, you do a lot of heavy lifting with the color of a frame, or the way that it's tinted, or how things look. Right,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, and then the sound. The sound mix that we finally used in in the final cut of the film was by Matt Scott Baker, who, much in the same way that Zach Clark did, and and our other uh, amazing crew members, he had a lot of fun with the mix. He took a very creative approach and added in little sounds like the creaking of stairs or the sound of a boat whistle or, you know, little things like that, um, that in addition to just make sure everything was level and things sounded good, added to the story in a very beautiful way. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I say this a lot, um, and this is an apocryphal statement, but I stand by it anyway. Uh, Max Sennett allegedly once said that a good director is just a traffic cop right? So <laughs> people kind of moving independently on the road and, and make sure that there are no major accidents, but just allows everybody the space to do their best work. And I kept that in mind while I was working on the film. And I think it really paid off because it is a very good movie. Um, not, like I said, not to discount my own work. I think I did a great job with it, but I also think that the, the best thing about the film is that I was able to get these very talented people to work with me on it yeah. and that I could, Accurately tell them what we were trying to accomplish, and they took it and ran with it, and exceeded my expectations.
1: Huh? Yeah, I didn't realize you worked with Matt. He's awesome.
2: He's amazing.
1: Yeah, he does. Matt's really
2: good no Baker, hire him.
1: <laughs> um. So you're not at Sidewalk yet, and that's going to be a lot of fun. It's a really great festival. Um,
2: I've never been to a film festival with a film that I've done before.
1: Yeah, but- it's
2: the first time ever that I'm doing it, and it is. At once exhilarating and utterly terrifying.
1: Yeah, no, it's a good fest. You'll be, they'll take care of
2: you. That's what I keep hearing. There's um, a spa apparently for VIP pass holders, of which I am one, as is Dylan. So we're uh, gonna get our spa on when we're there.
1: Shit, I must have missed that.
2: Yeah. A spa, and then there's also a VR lounge.
1: Oh, that's didn't have this that back been a in the day. Festival
2: now every festival's gonna have some VR. Misha teaching? Goss going and go, go to a VR room <laughs> there to see movies. I don't know why they need to bring VR into it, but yeah, that's just me. I'm I'm old <laughs> at heart.
1: Yeah. Um. So you were talking about you know you're more familiar with the repertory scene, but um, like do you have any like general assessments of like the indie scene or takeaways or anything like that?
2: Hmm. I don't see a ton of new movies. I mostly see the films that people I know make. Um, And there are, in every, there is, I should say, in every era of filmmaking, there is great stuff, um, but you don't know what the great stuff is going to be until years from now, right? Um, So I don't know, I can't say offhand, like, what are the best films? It's all purely subjective for me. I'm not an authority, really, in any way, about what makes a good movie or not, except in my own practice. But... Um, let's see Uh, there are some some really interesting things being done now and I think the festivals that do it best are uh, well migrating forums at BAM or most recently at BAM I should say and um, BAM Cinema Fest have some really interesting stuff and then from time to time we'll get uh, newer films that play at Spectacle 2 that I rather enjoy Um, but I don't know enough about the independent film scene overall Mm -hmm. to speak to its quality I think just as always, there are people doing good things and there are people doing not-so-interesting things. Uh, That's just the way that this business is. Uh, I definitely think that there are um, different strata, even within independent filmmaking and even within micro-budget filmmaking. So, for instance, you'll have a film like... um, What's a what's a recent film that I liked? It felt like love, the Eliza Hitman film that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah. Uh, I love that movie, and it's a, you know a low budget film, um, but you know it, it had a, probably it was less than a million dollars, but it still had a pretty good budget. Mm-hmm. And that film, you know, is very uh, it's very intimate and very kind of small scale, um, but thematically it feels like uh, a Hollywood melodrama, yeah. or you know uh, a more I would say it, like, harkens back to a, to another era, you know. I'm sorry I'm not more articulate on this subject, but I don't know a whole lot about new movies. Um, but that film is one that I especially like, because even though it is a low-budget feature, and, um, you know, it's not, like, some sweeping, uh, you know, overly stylized, like, Hollywood musical type of treatment, uh, thematically it has a lot in common with the films from that era that I really enjoy, and it's doing something inventive and different that you know, you don't see in a lot of other movies. Um, but you know, for every great film, like it felt like love or uh, snowy big bongs or, um, it's another, another great movie or white reindeer, one of Zach's movies. Um, there are just as many that are about, you know, like sad dudes and their dating lives and, you know, a group of people in New York figuring things out. And, um, there's obviously a, a very strong market for that kind of work. Um, I don't hate it, it doesn't suck, you know, <laughs> to, quote, to quote an actual masterpiece, Showgirls, it doesn't suck, um, but it's just not, you know, it's not really my thing. I've given the choice, to, to put it bluntly, given the choice between a new film about people living in New York in their late 20s or early 30s, i.e. people like me, or, you know, um, a Japanese pinku movie playing at Spectacle, or a me musical, or, you know, or uh, an action movie from the 80s, given the choice between a a contemporary film about smallish human things and uh, a repertory film about something outlandish and bizarre, I will take the latter. Because I've always been uh, somebody who prioritizes escapism in my movie-going habits, and maybe that's why I don't see so many new movies. If people made more escapist movies, I'd I'd probably be more into them. There are a couple coming out that look pretty good, though. Mm. So we'll see. Maybe maybe the tide will turn and people will do more strange and fantastical things.
1: Yeah, I mean, hopefully.
2: Yeah. That'd be nice.
1: Um, so, how great is Twitter?
2: How great is Twitter, or how grading is Twitter? I think is the more perfect <laughs> question. Um, it's interesting. I, I'm fascinated by this. Like I said, it's a cocktail party. Yeah. That's how I choose to approach it. Uh, but I'm really interested in the way that movie-going culture, especially in New York, has been kind of rocked by this Twitter thing. These kids and their Twitter thing, huh? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, not to, not to be like back in my day, but back in my day, you know, 11 years ago, 10 years ago when I moved here, um, you'd go to the movies by yourself, and then you'd like go home and you'd either blog about it which I did for maybe like one summer and then gave up. Um, or you'd like try to talk to people about it. And if they didn't see the movie or whatever, they weren't into it. Like I'd go into class on Monday and we'd talk about the movies we watched. And most of the people I went to school with um, would just like watch, uh, I don't know, like a Tarantino movie on DVD in their dorm or their apartment. Um, and I went to go see, you know, the pornographers or some bizarre, you know, French shit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and now there's a whole... A separate medium that people use to talk about movies, and I can't say definitively whether it's good or bad, again, same with new movies, only time will tell. Um, I'm glad people are talking about movies now, I'm glad that Twitter has opened up new avenues for uh, voices that you normally wouldn't encounter mm-hmm. in the film criticism space to have a platform. Um, but it's also just a lot of stupid lists and shit like top five or you run it more often than not. You get into this thing where I like this thing. Really? This thing sucks to me. Well, and then what kind of conversation is that? Why are we talking about this? It's uninteresting. It's boring. I'm bored by it. Um, I would
0: rather just have somebody post a bunch of pictures of like hot actors,
2: Random photo roll of Gene Kelly's ass, or yeah. like a scene of a sick burn from a pre-code movie. You know, yeah, just the fun stuff. That's yeah, what I
1: use Twitter
2: for.
1: Yeah, when Twitter becomes like a comment section, uh, you know, like a like a troll in the comment section, it's like boring, uh,
2: boring, God. just boring nerd chatter. I mean, there is something. It's it's interesting. There is something kind of like a, of the collector's impulse in New York movie going. Gotta catch them all, you know. Gotta see these films. Being a completist. Going here and how do you decide what to go and see? So, for for me, at, at my ripe old age of twenty nine, having been going to the movies here since I was a you know a late teenager, uh, seeing these kids now, these incoming students at Pratt and NYU and SVA and Columbia and whoever, and um, seeing them like read Screen Slate or or film comment or talk about movies online or see them at the theater or whatever, it's it's strange to me, but I'm also you know. I remember being a pain in the ass kid, like haunting the anthology lobby. So I I think it's nice that we've passed the torch, even though that torch is on Twitter and you can't turn it off. And it's just a constant barrage of other people's verbal diarrhea.
1: Yeah.
2: To put it mildly. Yeah.
1: Um, so going to wind down. Was there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to? Uh,
2: well, not really. I want to talk about uh, my new movies that
1: I'm working on. Yeah, that's what I was going to... You're uh, good. You You're good at this.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that's
1: exactly where I was going. But, you know, just in case, if you wanted to say something more about A Feast of Man or something before we get into, like, the winding down question. Yeah.
2: I'll say this about A Feast of Man. You likely won't see anything like it on, okay. the, on the festival circuit, assuming it does the festival circuit. I have no, I have no earthly clue, really. Um, you know, we got into Sidewalk in... Uh, mid-July, after being rejected from countless festivals, because I made the grievous mistake of either submitting blindly through one of these ridiculous websites, or uh, submitting as a work in progress.
1: Yeah, folks, don't do it.
2: Don't do it. I will say this, though, and this is... No, I'm not going to say this. I don't want to divulge my secret, but we've... We got really lucky this year. We didn't have to pay for a lot of our submissions. We got submission waivers, uh, which was good. Yeah. Um, I won't say how, because everyone has to learn their own way.
1: Yeah. I will say, um, so I was led to believe that you should submit, like, work in progress stuff um, to make a deadline. Look, if you want to take a chance, that's fine, but the way things go with people watching films in a festival atmosphere, like, uh, submissions and stuff like that. They're getting so many, and, look, honestly, it's kind of like any excuse they have to turn something off or to, like, be disengaged, they're gonna do it. So, yeah. you can submit, like, un unmixed, you know, uncolored, uh, films. It's can, not
2: recommended, though. Yeah,
1: you can definitely do it, but... To be honest, it's really not gonna do much for you unless you're already like a name and yeah. then like someone's gonna like really sit there and like assess your work and understand that it's not all completely together. Or and if it's the festival before, you
2: know, they're usually a little bit more forgiving when it comes
1: to those things. Yeah, like if you have a line with like a programmer or something and you guys are close enough where it's like, look, it's this isn't it, but you know. If you, if you give me that slot, it will be there. Um, and generally, if you have that, then it's like you don't really need our advice. So, like, it, it yeah. doesn't mean anything to you. Um, what
2: little I know about this process, and really, again, caveat emptor, as far as I know, this movie is only playing in one place at one time mm-hmm. for, the, for the foreseeable future. So take this advice with a grain of salt, a very, a very heaping grain of salt, because I'm no expert. Uh, yeah. But from what I understand, um, if you aren't shy about submitting your work and the way that you submit your work, emailing uh, programmers directly, or if you if you have mutual friends, you know, making the introduction yourself, um, I'm sure they fucking hate that. But you know, anything that you can do to distinguish yourself from the slush pile, because God knows there's a slush pile. Yeah, how totally. you got into sidewalk? I'm not entirely sure. I know Frank is uh, friendly with the programmers there, but I don't think that that was the sole reason. I think really and truly whoever was on the screening committee there just saw this film and thought this is different and strange and why not? And we're extremely grateful because, you know, I've heard a lot of no's and I've gotten a lot of rejections and, you know, I I have half a mind to just, to just uh, call it a, call it a day after the screening because I just, I feel like even getting to this point is such an accomplishment after
0: all the stuff that we've done. Yeah, Getting to a point where a film festival
2: in Birmingham, Alabama picks your film from the literal thousands that have been submitted for a, a very limited number of slots is a tremendous honor. And I certainly didn't think it was ever going to happen. I I started working on another movie a couple months ago because I'd given up any hope that this film was going to play anywhere mm-hmm. um, and I don't want to jinx it obviously not wood, but you know maybe after it plays in, at Sidewalk people, other people will see it and think oh, you know I'll pick it for my festival I don't actually know if that's you know something that happens um, I've heard from people that it does I don't know if it would happen to me per se um,
0: but you have to hope that it will yeah. or that's why the fuck are you doing it yeah. you know? you've got to believe that anything that you're doing will one day have its, its day in court
1: in the court of public opinion, or else you're really just jerking off. You're yeah. In case. Yeah. No, I'm glad you said that because I think it's really easy for us to get upset and to vent. You know, you and I have done that. Um, you get frustrated and you rant a little bit, but it is really important. You know, I love Sidewalk, but it's not like it's not Berlin. It's not you know con. That said, you have to celebrate. Like, every victory you got, no matter how small, no matter whatever, like, the way you put it is, like, there was someone who's like, yes, like, I love this film. I want people to pay to see it. I want to, like, put it out there, get behind it. That's really meaningful. That's really important. And it's like, no, you're not going to get, like, a studio job or whatever the fuck you want as a filmmaker after that. But it's like, that doesn't negate uh, playing this festival. Like, that doesn't negate this, like, this victory, this celebration, this thing that should make you should fulfill you in some capacity. I think that's really important uh, as an indie filmmaker to like have those little victories and to cherish them and appreciate them in that sense. Because. Absolutely. And,
2: and, you know, it's a little victory, but everybody has to start somewhere. As my old man likes to say, nobody hits a home run at their first at bat. Mm -hmm. Unless you're like, I don't know, you know, an a or whatever, but you know, most people don't hit a home run at their first at bat. And obviously, um, you know, if I had gone into this project under the assumption that I would have a like five picture deal with Fox Searchlight, or 24 yeah. or whatever afterwards. I mean, that's, you're setting yourself up for failure. You have to have very managed expectations, um, that I was able to pull the money to make this movie out of my ass and collaborate with all these great people and somehow trick a bunch of experts into listening to me, even though I've never made a feature film before. I mean, that's, that's pretty fucking hard. So the fact that it's playing at a festival after all of that to me is uh, it's icing on the cake, mm-hmm. and it's also tremendously encouraging. You know the 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 people in this business, if you can call it a business, who don't give up, who who work by hook or by crook, consistently to do the things that they do. Um, you know, I think those are some of the bravest people in this business. Even if every film they make isn't great, they still try. Um, just this past week I saw a film called The Body Beneath by a director named Andy Milligan who I'd never heard of but it was a weird Wednesday pick at Alamo Draft House by our dear friend Zach Clark and Andy Milligan I was reading about him after I saw the film was a guy who made like 30 or 40 movies in his lifetime um, at one point his output was neck and neck with Fossbinder and he made these extremely low budget movies on the you know—he's the ends of films and rep- with a newsreel camera recording the sound directly onto the the film so the sound mix is bad, but I mean he did all the costumes himself, his sets himself the film that I saw, and I'm sure countless others by him, are very visually interesting, Mm -hmm. and he's just one of those people that's compulsive you know, he was, he's dead now, he died in relative poverty, which is unfortunate because it's obvious he's some kind of genius Uh, but he just keeps making these movies, or he kept making these movies on his own terms, Um, Trent Harris the director who did Reuben and Ed I think it's Trent Harris. Yeah. And and the Beaver Trilogy is also another person who works in that way who I really admire. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're ever going to see, you know, his his newest film playing at Tribeca or Sundance or Cannes or Berlin. I don't think that he's that kind of filmmaker. I also don't think that that's the only mark of quality. I don't think that A Piece of Man is the kind of movie that's going to play at any of those places. Um, We knew that going into it. But I do know this. um, Having gotten into a festival um, is enough encouragement for me. I was already kind of committed to a life of making as many movies as I can before I depart this mortal coil and this just sort of confirmed to me, like, oh, you know, if one person likes it well enough to to put it in a festival, then why not just keep going with it? Yeah. What else I can come up with?
1: Mm -hmm. So what else can you come up with?
2: Oh, a whole bunch of stuff. Dylan and I are script right now about a haunted dingbat apartment complex in los angeles the apartment complex is haunted by the ghosts of uh, children who were uh, killed as part of a cult mass suicide in the 70s holy shit and a young woman it's kind of like the sentinel a young woman moves into this apartment and the dingbat complex uh starts to see and experience spooky things nobody believes her much to their detriment so that's the that's the big yeah like this this is a uh, much higher budget we have in mind and we want like a really strong ensemble cast, a uh, mix of people that we know who we've worked with and also some, you know, maybe larger, larger names. So we're working on that. And then a few months ago, a new kind of bizarre project emerged because I was feeling especially, um, this was back in January, or February. I was feeling especially discouraged about the future of my current movie, a feast of man. I was very, um, very discouraged. I'd gotten a lot of rejections and I thought, well, God, you know, nobody wants to see this movie. Everyone who's seen it tells me it's good, but if it's not playing anywhere, then how good is it really? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And I'm wasting my time. And why am I even bothering with this? And this is such a stupid whim and I should give it up and yada, yada. And, and it was the winter and the election had just happened. And I was just feeling like really um, as though I were teetering on the precipice of an existential void because movies are, are such a huge part of my identity as a Angelino, um, as a New Yorker, as a, as somebody who goes to the movies all the fucking time. So if I couldn't do that, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And at the time, my then roommate and star feast of man, Lawrence Bond, who plays Gallagher was working on a paper about a 14th century Christian mystic named Julian of Norwich who is considered the first woman to write a book in the English language because she had a series of visions while she was sick and receiving her last rites, a series of visions about Jesus Christ where he um, disclosed to her the meaning of life, you know, and the meaning of life, according to her showings is is love and to love one another and and emulate the the love that Christ has for all of us in our, in our daily doings. Um, I'm not a Catholic. I'm actually Jewish. Um, but I love this story because I loved uh, that this woman was at the absolute nadir of her life on her literal deathbed. She was in her thirties. Uh, things were not going well for her. And at her darkest hour, she received a sign mm. uh, and then furiously made a work from it. She wrote this short text. Then she became an anchorite, which is kind of like being a hermit, but she's attached to a, a monastery or a, a church. Um, and then she spent the rest of her life rewriting this this short book that she had written right when she came out of her sickness. So I thought, well, fuck it. I got to make that movie because I've never heard of this woman. Most people haven't.
0: Yeah. So, um,
2: so Lawrence and I wrote a, a short script for that. It's just the first part with revisions and we want to do a short of that and then use the short to raise money for the future. So, um, you know, a couple irons in the fire to put it mildly. It's mostly in the writing stage right now because writing is free. Mm-hmm. You can be as luxurious and lavish as you want with your project because the only thing you're spending is your own time. Yeah. So we can be as fantastical as we want when we're writing the script and then we can let the money men cut us down to size a little bit later.
1: <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Well, cool. Um, yep. So and thank you. And then
2: other than that, most, you know, just spectacle shit, if you're in New York, come to the spectacle theater. Oh,
1: there's absolutely.
2: Stay there. Yeah. Uh, New Yorkers
1: there's, better, there's, better come to the... What'd you say?
2: And subscribe to screenslate.com. Oh, yeah. I gotta give some shouts.
1: Yeah. Why not? While we're here. Um, Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, So, A Feast of Man is screening in Birmingham, Alabama on.
2: Saturday, August 28th. Yeah,
1: it's
2: the 28th. The 26th, sorry. Saturday, August 26th. Um, at ten fifteen, and the way I like to remind people is, if you know the Cure song, ten fifteen on a Saturday night, that's when our movie's playing.
1: That's the movie. Um,
2: ten fifteen on a Saturday night. So uh, yeah, the, the um, Birmingham Museum of Art in the, uh, I believe it's the Steinberg Auditorium.
1: Cool. Uh, all that info will be in the post, but you know, just in case you are not reading it, you're not listening to this via the article. Now you have the info. Um, so yeah thanks again for coming on really appreciate it and
2: um, I can't wait to come back with my next movie
1: hell yeah Uh, so I guess this is a new thing but how can people keep up with news about you and your work
2: okay well uh, there's a Feast of Man Facebook page that I haven't really done much with because I don't know how Facebook pages work that well I should also say right now that we're doing our own PR for the premiere of the film Um, because Sidewalk is not a a festival that gets a lot of national coverage, so we thought, well, fuck it, we'll do it ourselves. Um, So, yeah, A Feast of Man on Facebook, where you can see the trailer, and there'll be some other goodies uh, popping up there in the coming days before we premiere. Um, And, of course, on Twitter, you can follow me (laughs) for for, uh, some shameless self-promotion and then just a lot of tweets about old buildings and uh, hotties from old movies, I would say. It's the bulk of my output there, but there's also feast of man stuff. So if you type in hashtag a feast of man or follow me at Caroline Avenue, that's Avenue spelled out, then you'll get all the information there is because we're the only people disseminating it right now.
1: Cool. Well, that's it. Anything else you'd like to say?
2: Um, well, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, well, uh, you know, indie beat is an invaluable part of this ecosystem and I am honored that you would spend an hour and a half listening to me
1: talk. Dude, the honor is mine.
2: No, the honor is mine, my
1: friend. Mine. No, mine. Come on. Thank you. Um, Okay, great. Well, I hope you have a good night and I hope your screening goes amazing and it will. Thank you. Peace.